When listening to the following announcements, please observe this procedure. First, make certain that each announcement emanates from the correct channel. Secondly, while listening, adjust your amplifiers so that the sound from each loudspeaker is of equal volume. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and this episode of the True Tunes podcast is really different and, I think, really cool. I am joined not only by an amazing guest, singer, songwriter, artist, festival founder, Drew Holcomb, but by an array of assistant interviewers as the students in my class at Lipscomb University take turns asking questions as well. But how, you might be wondering, did I find myself in a room with Drew Holcomb and a Grammy and Dove Award-winning member of the Gospel Music Hall of Fame, who happens to be Drew's father-in-law? Well, I'm glad you asked. If I had a great big mansion I'd rather live in a shotgun shack with you And if I drove a red Ferrari Rather ride in an Oldsmobile with you With you I can be myself With you I don't have to be somebody else It's like putting on my favorite pair of shoes Oh, I like to be with me I'm with you. As you might know, in addition to the many other things I do, both because I love to and to try to make ends meet in my particular corner of the music industry, I have at various points and in various ways been a teacher. Recently, I was tapped to co-teach an artist development class at the behest of the amazing Brown Bannister. Brown has amassed 14 Grammy Awards, 25 Dove Awards, and countless gold, silver, and platinum albums as a record producer or engineer for dozens of artists, including Amy Grant, C.C. Winans, Whiteheart, Third Day, Michael W. Smith, Charlie Peacock, Rich Mullins, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Carolyn Aarons, Kim Hill, Mercy Me, and the list goes on. He currently serves as the director of the School of Music at Lipscomb's College of Entertainment and the Arts, which was started by Charlie Peacock, and he asked me to join him as an adjunct instructor this last semester, which I agreed to do. Later, the school asked me to sign on as a full-time director of their music industry studies program, which I have also accepted. Brown's daughter, Ellie Holcomb, is an award-winning, critically acclaimed, and much-beloved artist herself, who got her start as a member of her husband, Drew Holcomb's mainstream Americana band, The Neighbors. Early in the semester, Brown and I knew that we wanted to close out our months-long exploration of the creative, administrative, emotional, professional, and even spiritual work of the artist, songwriter, or producer with an in-class conversation with someone who could pull it all together for us. I wanted our final guest speaker to be someone who had experience as an independent artist, who knew the value of cultivating community, who demonstrated the kind of boundary-pushing, limit-defying creative work that earned respect from all corners 
corners of the culture. Basically, I wanted Drew Holcomb, and I asked Brown if he thought he'd do it. Brown reached out to his son-in-law, found an afternoon after his tour wound down, and locked it in. What you are about to hear is a carefully recorded version of the artist development class Brown Bannister and I taught, actually called Catalog and Portfolio 3, a class designed to help seniors prepare for their final capstone project, which they will pull together in their final semester. There were just eight students in the room, two teachers, and our very special guest speaker. I got the conversation started with a few questions and then passed the microphone so each student could ask one question. The results? Well, you'll see. Right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Jesus walked on the water. He made a blind man see. We all just want someone to ride in the passenger seat. Hi, I'm Bill Keith, and I'm a Patreon backer of True Tunes. The show is really important to me, and I know that the money I contribute each month goes a long way toward helping with the cost associated with producing and distributing a show of this caliber. And yes, the rewards are cool too. We get early access to new episodes that we can download in a higher quality audio format, as well as invites to exclusive backers-only Zoom hangs and some special swag and stuff. There are multiple levels you can join at, and every gift helps. Check out patreon.com slash truetunes for more information on how to join me and the rest of the Patreon tribe. And thanks for considering a gift. It really will make a difference. Hey there. I'm Mark Feldbush, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast, and I follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. I get to hear classic artists that I really dig and discover new artists. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated with around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and so much more. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true without all of the genre and market limitations and boxes I hear everywhere else. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically each week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all previous lists get saved. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you hear and discover them there. Thanks.
soulful Americana sound for sure, but I really love the way he has existed outside of any specific genre limitations. If you're not familiar with his work, you will be soon. We are going to pull together a collection of songs from throughout Drew's catalog and play them throughout the show. I've also curated a special Spotify mix that combines his and Ellie's songs with some of the artists he has collaborated with and featured at his Moon River Festival, now in Chattanooga, which has become my favorite festival since that big one up in Illinois ended 10 years ago. Thanks to the careful and thoughtful questions brought by the students, this conversation covers all of that and a lot more. So join me now at the College of Entertainment and the Arts on the campus of Lipscomb University, just south of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Stay a while, maybe I will find the words to say this time. I'm an honest man, will try and speak my mind. It's hard to find your way without a light When we drink wine You have a way to slow the motion in my mind All the while can turn me back to you in mid-flight It's hard to find your way without a light This is uh, Drew Holcomb And I'm Brown Bannister this is actually my favorite son-in-law. Actually, my only son-in-law. <laughs> no, seriously, Drew is uh, the way he has carved out a path from a business standpoint, from an artistic standpoint, from an integrity standpoint. Is It's one of the people I admire the most in the industry is, is Drew. And um, I'm just so excited he's here to talk about it. Welcome, Drew Holcomb. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'll start with just a question, then we're going to go around the circle, and all the students will ask a question. I've got a few more at the end. But I'd like to first just hear you, as Brown was saying, you've carved such an interesting path, especially in the fact that you you haven't sat in one pre-existing lane you didn't you didn't say okay here's the market i'm in here's the genre i'm in you've kind of found your own you've kind of invented almost your own genre i'd like to hear a summary of that path and uh, how that emerged for you uh, i know that it involved a couple of surprises along the way but just kind of tell us about your journey how you got started and and how that path emerged for you yeah i mean it's a i could probably write a book on that particular question just because there were so many, there've been so many different seasons of my career, seasons of my creativity, seasons of practical considerations. When I got started, I, 
I didn't study music in college. I was a history major who was planning on going to graduate school and doing something else, but I had loved music and I would, I played music. And then I went and studied abroad my junior spring and started really writing songs. And all of a sudden I was like, man, I think, I, I think I'm okay at this. You know, I'm not sure that I'm good at it, but I'm, I'm not bad at it, you know, and got back to Knoxville for my senior year and started playing the songs for some friends and then booked a few shows and uh, like in Knoxville and play and, and just kind of started kind of messing around with it really uh, as a sort of a sort of a side hobby experiment and a lot of people friends and people I didn't know very well were like hey these are you should maybe try to do this you know there's a producer in Memphis that I had bought a car from in high school and somehow we had stayed in touch because of some mutual friends and some mutual love of music. And so I went and played him some songs on a weekend that I was home during that fall. And he, uh, I'll never forget, he's got this great sort of Southern Mississippi accent. And he's like, you know, Drew, I hate to tell you this. And usually when people uh, play me their songs, I look forward to telling them they should not do music. Um, but um, <laughs> He looks forward to that. Yeah. I love letting people down. He said, but you know, I, I hate to tell you, but I think you've actually got something here. And long story short, he then offered me sort of a internship slash job out, out of college at his studio. And at the time he was working with bands as diverse as the three bands that I worked, that he worked with while I was there were third day, then saliva, then sister Hazel. So like, the whole gamut of sort of popular music um, at the time. And I learned a lot, but I also learned really quickly that I, he, I think he also wanted to teach me how to be like an engineer and be a studio person. And I had a, no interest and in B no, no uh, like aptitude for it. And so I just wanted to write songs and play. And so every day I was at the studio, I just wanted to be like out playing open mic nights and being on stage. And um, so that that's the route that I took. I quickly got uh, out of the studio and started playing um, cover song bar gigs where I would work in original music. I started playing college coffee house stuff. I built a little bit of a following and I basically knew that I, there were like six places in the South where I knew enough people that I could play like a coffee shop the size of this room and get it half full, you know, or a bar the size of this room. So that was Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis. Auburn, Alabama, Birmingham, and Oxford, Mississippi. And so I started building those six places very slowly and organically and playing there as much as I could and getting to know, begging real venue owners to let me open for the national act that didn't have an opener and things like that. And that was sort of my first three years was that model. It was just like pure hustle, play wherever anybody would open up the microphone for me and write a lot of songs. Postcard memories only paint a picture how you are in one place at a time I need you now more than ever before I'm waiting for you to come back home what was your style at that point yeah I mean it was it was still very singer songwriter but it was a little more um, it was very unrefined it was uh sort of young Steve Earle, young Ryan Adams, early Bob Dylan, you know, just sort of like, pay attention to me, I got something to say, songwriter stuff, you know, guy with a guitar. Um, and then 
over time, I mean, I've, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, so there, there are definitely key moments in my career, but I think really in, like if I had sort of themes of my career, one would be independence. So I always just wanted to do it. My, I wanted to kind of do it my own way. And so choosing a genre and trying to get signed by a label never really had a lot of appeal for me because I, I just didn't want to um, be beholden to something else. And then I also really enjoyed the, the create creative independence. And I'm, I'm not at, at first my, let's say the first 12 to 12 years of my career, I was not a very good collaborator. And so also highly valued the independence on that front as I've matured and become more comfortable in my own skin as a creative person. I really enjoyed collaboration partially because I hold on to things more loosely, but also because I know who I am. And so those are, those two things living in tension with each other make it make it better for me to be in the studio and say if somebody says I want to try this and my, my younger self would have said no that's not what I want now I say well let's try it mm-hmm. see what happens and maybe they're right and then if they're wrong I have enough confidence in who I am as an artist to say that's cool that was well executed but it's not what I want and so let's not do right. it you know and so those things all took time and I would say that like so independence was a big value to me all the way throughout and then building a team of people that I enjoyed working with, whether that was people in the studio or, you know, at this point now it's management and I've been with the same publicist now for almost 10 years, which mostly you have like a, most people have like a six month timeline with their publicist. And then they start, artists start blaming the publicist for why they're not getting X, Y, and Z or, you know, um, and so, Loyalty and um, and camaraderie have always been really important to me. Just like acknowledging that to make anybody's career work, it takes like it take, kind of takes a village. And then I didn't have any humility when I started, and I've earned it the hard way. <laughs> Funny how life does. Yeah, that to it us. does that to you. It does that to you. And and now I'm I'm more open-handed with both my songwriting with my you know, arrangements with the band with, uh, you know, I used to micromanage what people were on stage and now I'm like, I don't care what y'all wear on stage. Just, you know, our vibe, just be an adult and dress yourself, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but little things like that. And also just kind of knowing I've just gotten so much great advice over the years. So my whole thing is like, feels like sort of a patchwork quilt of my own creative identity and then learning from other people as I've gone but at the end of the day, I really just wanted to be a performing songwriter and I wanted to write my own material and sing it in my own voice and play with my band and, and have my band play on the records. And those things seem kind of simple, but they're some, sometimes, especially in Nashville, like the playing with your own band thing was a bit like producers were very against that idea. Like, no, no, no you got to use like pro people. And I was like, well, then I need to use a different producer because this is my band and they're a part of my creative team. Shouting and struggling and feeling like you're nothing Trying not to give in, not to take it on the chin Trying to wear your thickest set of skin Music, it makes you feel good, makes you feel understood Like you're not alone, not a rolling stone Not the only one on the road Your band, even the evolution of the band, 
talk about that just for a second because that you started as a solo person, mm-hmm. but then you met some people and it wasn't it wasn't intentional. Tell us about how that came. Yeah, out. I was in and even I was, with Ellie. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was in Memphis. I had, gra- I had graduated from UT in Knoxville and and moved home to Memphis. Got the job at the studio. Started playing, etc. And when I would go to Knoxville, Ellie would sing with me, and that was a lot of fun. She was a um, getting her master's in education at the time and um, was just singing with me for fun. And she was dating someone else, so it wasn't even you know uh, a thing really other than just like we were friends and sure. I loved her. I loved her for voice. No, I wanted it to be a thing, <laughs> but I, it really was just a, it was just fun. Mm-hmm. And then in Memphis, my old youth pastor was like, Hey, there's this kid in my youth group. He can play everything. You should have him come play with you. And I was like, cool. Some 17 year old kid, but I got desperate for a show that needed the, the, the promoter person demanded that it wouldn't be solo. So I was like, I called this kid up. I was like, Hey, can you learn these 10 songs? I went to his house. His parents were there, and we were like rehearsed in the living room. And he was a, just a freakishly good, talented player. And now we've been playing together for twenty years. Wow! So he then came to school in in Nashville for music, and then met. Um, and his name is his name is Nathan Duggar. Yes, I'm sorry, sorry, Nathan <laughs> Duggar. Uh, he moved here to go to school, and then would play with me on the weekends. Then I moved here when Ellie and I got married, and then he met Rich Brinsfield um, at Belmont. Um, Rich was a great bass player, is a great bass player, was already a great bass player at the time. Anyway, so it sort of evolved that way. They have been my core band now for almost 20 years. And then we've had a rotating cast of drummers, keys players, and we've really really settled into the band that we are now. Um, Will Sales has been playing drums with me for about five years. He was a studio, is a studio player here in town that Brown had actually used many, many times on records. He was a, uh, just as soon as he moved to town at like 19 years old, he started getting studio work. And now he's my road guy, which is amazing. So I have a really great band. I think my band sort of outkicks the music. Last question, then we're going to you guys. So be ready. Yeah. Um, it was a couple of sync placements that sort of sparked things, and we've been talking a lot about sync lately. Yeah. So uh, tell us about how a couple of placements how, how worked for you, yeah. and how that happened, and then what the effect was for you. Yeah. Well, the first placement I got was this was back in the MySpace era, which is um, <laughs> okay. So right, there's eight tracks. Really dates me. Dinosaurs, uh, eight tracks, MySpace. But at the time, MySpace <laughs> felt super. Um, I mean, it was yeah. like the TikTok of the era, or whatever the newest app is. I can't keep up anymore. But um, I'm a balding forty year old, so my my social media, um, you know, I'm not I'm not up to date. But MySpace was the new hot thing, and a guy sent me this message on MySpace, and he's like, "Hey, I connect artists with 
these pitch companies and this pitch company is interested in representing your music. I didn't know anything about contracts at the time. They send me one. I didn't realize I was also signing a co-pub deal that if they got a, a sync on a song, then they got co-publishing on the song. Thankfully, I only worked with them for a short while and they got three songs co-pub on. Um, but anyways, that's another side note about the hiccups of like being young and stupid and not knowing anything about the music business. Which nobody here is stupid at least. yeah y'all y'all have actually still young y'all got the information i didn't have any you know of it means you know now. no one told me when i graduated as a history major that i was <laughs> signing up to run a small business and that i needed to know about all these things so i i'm just like oh my song on tv yes let's go do that so uh my first placement was on a tv show on usa called army wives and it was basically like a melodrama about the, the wives who were left behind when their husbands went off to the Middle East. This was during the, uh, the Iraq War. So um, they used this song. They paid me $3,000, which felt like a fortune at the time. It was a fortune to me at the time. Then I had to pay them, you know, like 40% of the money back, which was also learning things, you know. But that one was the first one I got, and I actually saw like an uptick of that. This was also right around the time the iTunes Store had launched, so this would have been like two thousand five or six, maybe maybe mm -hmm. seven, two thousand six, I think. And all of a sudden, that song got like four hundred downloads that night for four hundred bucks. I was like, "Wow, this actually works." So fast forward, they got me a couple more. At the same time, my touring career had expanded from those six cities and all the random stuff to maybe like twelve places. And so I was actually starting to make a little bit of money, like instead of, I could, I was maybe making like $700 a show and then the band, we were all piling into one hotel room and I was paying everybody a hundred bucks and I was netting out like 150 bucks, you know, uh, which felt again, like better than losing money, which is also what happens a lot of times, even still. Um, so then my career was at this sort of standstill it was probably around 2008 or 9 we weren't really like ellie and i had been married for two years she had quit her job and joined me for a year and a half we were really giving it our all but it was really just not going great and just didn't feel like it, the music was connecting in a way that there was like a long future in it and we had kind of made a decision of all right well let's finish out our commitments for the year this was probably like may or june and then if nothing changes by the end of the year then next year we're going to move on and at that point i had been doing it for five years which felt like a long time when you're you know 28 years old 27 years old um and i wrote a song called live forever that i'd written i'd also because of the tv placements i started trying to write for tv placements you know i kind of lost my way a little bit of like writing f for the sake of writing something for art's sake instead of writing something for commercial sake nothing wrong with that but that's not what i wanted to do and so my songwriting had sort of suffered because of the lack of heart in it. And so this one night, my sister calls me, gives me this bad news that they're moving with their kids to leaving Nashville to move to Panama in Central America. I got really sad about it, melancholy. I went in the other room, I wrote the song, it took me 10 minutes. Released the song, I played it for Brown, and he's like, wow, that's like really special. Maybe the best song you've written yet. And we released it that october or september and all of a sudden the shows that fall went from like 50 to 80 people to like 200 to 300 people and everybody's singing the song and i was like oh wow and, and that first producer had told me when i first started out you know because i was like oh, i need a booking agent i need a manager i need a publicist da, da, da. he's like no you need the right song 
you know. Yeah, he's good, like, if you have the, if you have the right song, it will do a lot of the work for you. Now, not to discount all of those players and the roles that they play, but at the end of the day, if they don't have something to work on, promote that is connecting with people, it's all sort of futile. Take courage, and the road is long. Don't ever forget, you are never alone. I want you to live forever underneath the sky so So that song was connecting, and we literally didn't have a car to, to tour, and we were borrowing my sister-in-law's SUV, my sister's SUV, my brother-in-law's SUV. And we had shows that were starting to catch fire, and then all of a sudden NBC's Parenthood, in their first season, which was this huge hit show, they wanted to do this big end-of-season-one montage, and they wanted to use Live Forever, and... They offered to pay us twenty thousand dollars, and we were like, "What?" Is Without taking going Copub, on? probably. Without Copub, <laughs> right. exactly. <laughs> uh, a fair deal, and uh, we were able to buy a van to tour in with that money, which gave us some stability to actually go and execute things we had said yes to. <laughs> uh, and then the song, uh, the, that moment, the next day, the song went all the way to number one on the singer-songwriter chart, which at the time was the marker of success of any given day was like what's, like iTunes was everything, right? you know, before streaming. And so those were sort of the two, you know, I'll go, I'll go one more, I'll fast forward to like two, a year ago. So 2020 hits and... Um, we get all of our shows canceled. Touring is like 70% of our, of our, you know, business, how we pay our bills and how we pay our band and our team. It all goes away, you know, in a matter of days. And we're wondering how we're gonna pay everybody, wondering how we pay ourselves. And um, this song called Family that had come out the previous summer, summer of 19, um, like six weeks into the pandemic, Tyson Chicken calls and it's like, hey, we're doing this big, thing about family because no one's with their families and they're missing each other and we want to do this summer ad about family and it's a nostalgia piece and we want to pay you X and I'm not even going to say it because it was so much money mm-hmm. and it was enough to pay the band and ourselves for all 70 shows that got canceled so that's the once in a lifetime thing that happened but yeah go Tyson Chicken you know now part of the reason it happened is they did a three month sync three months like three month license with the right to resync and they resynced it four times so they, they and every time they had to pay the exact same amount of money so that's why the money ended up adding up to this large pile of money that allowed us to pay to keep everybody in our band paid for the and year. then other people end up licensing the song yeah then ford used it that. for the super bowl and <laughs> right yeah family has been like this and it doesn't even have a chorus, guys. It doesn't have <laughs> The whole a song is the chorus. That's the thing. It's a now, stanza song with a chorus-like right. shout and response. So there's, just, there's no rules. It's amazing. Keep it going. Family, sons and daughters. 
do you do you ever feel like like a song like Family, for instance? My son was with us both at Moon River, and then that's the song. He's like, I'm I'm so sick. I hear that song everywhere. He kind of judged everything you did on a commercial. Yeah, yeah. And then when he heard more of the stuff, he's like, oh well. You know, th- there's some good stuff here. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that there's ever a risk in sort of overexposure of something like that? Have you ever oh, have you seen any kind of downside to any sure. of that stuff? Yeah, I mean, Mariah Carey's had this like incredible pop career, and she's known by like most of people younger than me as the person who sings "All I Want for Christmas" because it's so oversaturated in the holidays. The guys that did the song for the Friends TV show, um, "I'll Be There for You," the Rembrandts. They did that song as a like one-off just to get on the show. It wasn't even their song, and it killed their career. Yep. So you don't know. I think it's you run the risk of overexposure when you chase it. But those things, the things that happened with me, came naturally for a song that I wrote and love. Like if your son and I were to sit down and talk through this, the lyrics, I think he would go, "Oh, this isn't just like a jingle. No, it's great. This song. is a song about like the complexity of family." But commercials don't necessarily have that sort of time to defend themselves. But you certainly run that risk. But I think that's the same thing with a hit. Like, that's why they have one-hit wonders. <laughs> There's one thing I learned that's really true. The trajectory of your career going up is what it also looks like going down. And what I mean by that is, like, if you go, <laughs> get ready. <laughs> <laughs> like, so many of my peers that, yeah. like, have had big huge hit whatever bam but if you if you build it slow and then it turns around it's like well it's a nice little (laughs) jaunt back down to the bottom (laughs) and that's like 30 years (laughs) you know this was like so it's like now the best is if you're already here Right. And you go, woo! And you're like, wow, still landed on my feet. You know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Do you remember the uh, Christmas morning of what year was that? Oh, yeah. That was uh, that would have been 2010 or 9. A year after Live Forever was on Parenthood, Ellie and I were at Brown and Debbie's, my in-law's house, for Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. And at the time, none of us had any children. And so we stayed up till 4 in the morning, playing card games, laughing. And so we slept in till like 10 or 11. And about 11.30, which was also coincidentally the time of the tip-off of the first game of the NBA season because they had had a strike. And so the first game was going to be Christmas Day. And there was all this big lead-up to Christmas Day. I start getting all these texts and Twitter messages and tags. Oh, that was so great. I love the new commercial, the NBA. Oh, that was amazing. And I'm like, what is everybody talking about? So I called my dad, who loves the NBA. He's like, oh, man, that was awesome. You, you should have told me that was going to happen. What are you trying to surprise me? I was like, honestly, I have no idea what is going on right now. And come to find out, the NBA, not actually the NBA, TNT, who had the first game of the year, they had used the song Live Forever to create this commercial that was a montage of old black and white video of old NBA players made it look like they were playing with new ones. So it's like, oh, Pete Maravich is dishing off to Jordan, who's then like going in for a dunk, and then he's blocked by LeBron. So they had like all this intergenerational wow. video editing to this, you know, and a lot of the people in the video have passed away, and so it was very emotional for all these NBA fans. But they didn't actually ask for permission to use the song. 
And so we got in this huge, long, I was calling my manager, Christmas Day, like, do you know about this? And he's like, no, we call it called Dual Tone, who's our distributor. No, we didn't know about this. The sink come. No one knows about it. They, so we have to hire a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. Turns out they didn't ask permission because they basically didn't have time to ask for permission. They hit the deadline. And then they basically, basically dared us to sue them. And so instead, I was like, how about I take it to the Boston Globe? Wow. And they were like, oh, this, yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about this. <laughs> oh, because the Boston Globe guy had written an article like three days after Christmas. He had interviewed the guy that put the commercial together. And he had said he was in a hotel lobby and had heard the song and heard the lyric about play on children like it's Christmas Day and thought that'd be a great thing some year. And he had saved it. So we had like interview proof. <laughs> that they had used the song because you know and anyway so we were like we'll call uh derek at the boston globe i think he would like to have a follow-up on this so anyways they ended up paying us for it and we worked it out and ended up winning a sports emmy and i didn't play sports in high school so all my cousins i'm one of 28 grandkids a lot of my cousins were great athletes all state and this and that and sports illustrated ran this piece called it the greatest sports commercial of all time and i just took a picture of it and sent it to all my athletic cousins <laughs> i was like the look who's in sports music. illustrated <laughs> this guy <laughs> laughter is the only thing that'll keep you sane in this world that's dying more and more every day Don't let evil get you down In this madness spinning round and round I want you to live forever Underneath the sky so blue All right, we're going to go to the students here. So tell us your name and your what your area of study is and your future plans in a nutshell, and then your question. Hi. Hi. My name's Kelly Cates. I'm a commercial music songwriting major. Um, I currently do mainly like uh, in-studio and live uh, vocal work, whether it's background vocals or lead vocals. I kind of wanted to touch on Moon River. Yeah. I'm a big music festival fan, um, and you founded that in like, 2014 right? right so it's been a yeah. been a been a bit um and i'm just curious like how does something like that go from an idea um to what it is today because obviously it's grown um really great festival by the way thank you kelly yeah so i had i've always loved playing festivals i've always found them to be sort of a magical thing both for the artists and for the audience because the artist gets to find new fans and the audience gets to find new bands and new artists that they haven't heard of that was always my experience as a festival goer. I started going to festivals in the ninth grade and kind of never looked back. So at the time, there was a lot. there were a lot of uh, artist-curated festivals starting to happen. Mumford & Sons had this thing called Gentlemen of the Road. Um, this band in Memphis that is called Lucero had an annual thing called The Family Picnic. Uh, Grace Potter and the Nocturnals had an event called Grand Point North. Um, and so there was just a number of artist-curated festivals, and I had played a lot of new festivals as a young artist, and almost always they didn't go very well unless there was a key artist that sort of took ownership of them to, draw, to sort of draw the bulk of the audience. 
So I had this harebrained idea. Let's do this in Memphis at a small venue there called the Levitt Shell. That's like a amphitheater that holds like maybe fire marshal says 5,000. It feels pretty full with about 3,500. And we'll do a one day eight band, you know, thing. And I called all my friends and got favor rates from all my friends' bands. And we just had this great day and we sold like 1,200 tickets in advance and ended up having like 2,500 people show up that day. It was so much work. Ellie was nursing a nine month old. There was one green room for eight bands. We ran out of ice at one o'clock. We also ran, it was on a uh, Saturday and the banks were closed. We ran out of change at two o'clock and had to send a, a friend with uh, $2,000 in 20s across the river to the Greyhound racetrack gambling place to get fives and ones so that we could give people, and we didn't have concessions. We were doing like grilling out hot dogs and selling, buying Papa John's and reselling the slices for like $4 a slice. And it was totally homemade. Um, and how it grew was really, I put a, I put a lot of the, the sort of, uh, credit to that from on my management team who were my partners on it they just really curated the design element the the sort of festival goer patron experience if you will but then also the next summer we were on the tour de compadres which was a tour that need to breathe ben rector myself and colony house did together ben did ben to the first half switchfoot did the second half and they agreed to bring the package to moon river as a as the memphis play and we also had Judah and the lion before they blew up that day and a number of other bands um and so the second year it sold out and it just kind of created like a really big story in memphis and then we did it a third year and then almost lost a bunch of money because we expanded to two days and we got weird weather and anyways it was really stressful so we put it on ice for a year and just decided we were like, this is too much for us. It's too much stress, too much financial exposure. But the idea was really sound and we had a good brand sort of reputation, I guess. And then AC Entertainment who puts on Bonnaroo and High Water and Railroad and a few others. They also had been promoting our shows in, at the Ryman and Knoxville and a few other places. And they said, hey, we would love to take it over and make y'all, keep y'all as partners, but would y'all consider moving into Chattanooga? And so we went and met with the Chamber of Commerce and found the, like they showed us Coolidge Park and it was a perfect spot for a festival. There's two big lawns. There's like a walking, I'm just like, well, how, how has there not been a music festival here? And so we, we did it and now I'm not financially responsible for it, which feels so much better. But now I just get to do my favorite part, which is curate the lineup and host and be a part of the branding and design stuff, which is all the stuff I like to do, instead of like calling porta potty companies. Well, I don't know you, but I don't mind. May the voices of strangers rise up through the ashes tonight. May the voices of strangers rise up through the ashes tonight. Please Screw Armageddon 
for me. I'm Caroline. Uh, I am a commercial music singer-songwriter major, and I want to do background vocals. Um, and I guess my question for you is, you talked a lot about how like you'd had like some lows that you had been dealing with, and I was just wondering how you deal with that like internally like how what do you yeah. what's your thought process going through those such a, and remind me of your name again caroline caroline yes caroline that's such a great question i think if i had it to do over again i wish that i had gotten advice from older artists not just about how to make a career and how to make a record and how to get a show but how to take care of myself it took me like 10 years to figure that out and by that point i was drained emotionally i was in serious need of therapy and I think the biggest thing I wish I had answered that I think is a big part of that is the why like why do I want to do this what is it about music that makes me want to dedicate my work and life to this and there's not a wrong answer but I think it's important to know the answer at least partially you know Maybe it's just because you just absolutely love music and you've been dreaming about it since you were a kid and you just can't imagine yourself doing anything else. That's great. Maybe it's because you were bullied and no one believed in you and you found this one thing that you're good at and you're going to do this to prove to everybody that ever doubted you that you're valuable. Also worthy, but good to know that that's the motivator. Because no matter what the motivator is, music will not fulfill whatever it is that the reason of why you're doing it. It's going to be disappointing. And that's true for any job, I think. Now, that's not to say that there aren't incredible highs, but for me, it's been really good. For instance, I think a lot of artists, a lot of musicians, it's really easy to compare yourself to other people and say, well, so-and-so, you know, they got asked to do X, and I feel like I'm as good or better than them, and why did they get asked, and why didn't I? Is something wrong with me? Did I not, you know, say the right thing, or did I not go to the right party, or did I not? I mean, there's like all these ways you can second-guess all of your decision-making. But instead of that, like having a posture of celebrating everybody else's successes and just waiting and being patient for your own, that will change your life, no matter what your passion is, whether it's you want to be a background singer or you want to be a songwriter, or you want to be a producer or you want to be in marketing or you want whatever side of the business you're drawn to. Like there are going to be people who aren't as good at you that, that get better success than you do. Just a fact. And, and that's going to be true for you. There are going to be people that you're not as good at that you're going to beat out for stuff, you know? And it's just all part of the, like, take a deep breath and look around and go, what, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I love it. Or I'm doing this because it's the only thing I know how to do. And, again, all of those things are okay answers, but I think just being able to celebrate what's going on around you and then also to, like, listen to yourself there are a lot of things that I could, I wish I would have just taken, gone with gut instinct and gone, you know what? I should have just said no to that. Even though it was like, it seemed like a dream come true because every dream that comes true at some point becomes some sort of nightmare. Even if it's just a logistical nightmare, like moon river this year was a nightmare for me because it, we got rained out and everybody's yelling at me on social media. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be having fun. And now I feel like I'm about to start sobbing because I can't take this, you know, I can't take the, the emotional pressure of, that the job is putting on me so i just i think yeah finding out the like the, the motive like what motivates you to to do what you want to do and then really really like working on celebrating everybody else while you're while you're finding your own way and then thirdly i think most important for me has been a lot of people don't celebrate when things do go well 
I think it's important to celebrate and to mark. Like if you have a goal of, I want to be hired to sing on a record, the major label record by the time I'm 18 months from now. If it happens, then celebrate it. I did it. I did something that I tried to do. This is awesome. Have some friends over and like, you know, celebrate. Or buy yourself something like my dad always, every time he has a grandchild, he buys himself a a, a new watch. He's a watch guy. (laughs) So he's like, he's got a lot of watches, 10 grandkids. So, but he likes watches. So he's like got the money to buy a nice watch. So he does. And so just little, like for him, it's like he wears them in rotation and he like, you know, his thing is like, oh, this is my day to pray for Essie, you know? Every time he looks at his watch. So, I mean, and, and also I, I've told a lot of young artists, like if it's too much and you realize in halfway into the journey that like you, you made a mistake and you actually hate it, that's okay to say that out loud and to walk away. Right. Just because you like did this process and gave all your time to it, if it's not right and you need to walk away, take a deep breath and go, I learned a lot about myself. Because essentially that's why you're doing this. What you're doing is not just to like, accomplish something but it's to grow as a person like every job every career recalling is meant to to like change who you are in a good hopefully in a good way you know and so if that's not happening and you're and you're like it's sending you down the wrong way pull the plug it's okay but at the same time no matter how much success you have and whatever your dreams are there's not gonna they're not gonna fulfill you completely i have a great story of a friend of mine was playing guitar in a band his whole dream his whole life was to play guitar in a band and he had this thing about Madison Square Garden. And all of a sudden, he finds himself on tour with this act. This is 15 years ago. And they're opening up for John Mayer at Madison Square Garden. They did the whole John Mayer tour. They're at Madison Square Garden. He comes out on stage. He's playing guitar. He looks around and sold out Madison Square Garden. And he goes, all right, I don't want to do this anymore. At the end of the tour, he quit music, went to law school. And now he lives in, um, in Jordan. And he's an a Arabic translator for the United Nations. Even when the rain pours down even when the light seems like it's fading Even when your heart aches, feels like it's gonna break It's when you sing out loud I'm Gracie. Um, I'm in a band with my husband. It's called River and Rail. Thank you for your music. It was really integral um, to Alex and I's relationship. Oh, cool. Um, And it inspired us to move to Nashville and do music because we saw you guys having kids and leading a family as musicians together, um, which just gave us the boost of courage to go do it. So thank you. Yeah. Um, And in light of that, um, looking back on all the different tours that you've done with Ellie, with and without, um, how did you balance that career and somehow maintain the marriage as the priority? Like, how did you take care of your relationship as business partners in music? Most of my answers to that would probably be like a little bit practical, but the overarching thing would be similar to my answer to Caroline is like a healthy dose of perspective is important when you see that sort of like check engine light come on where you're like wow this is this career pursuit is eating our 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 relationship then it's time to like pump the brakes and create space outside of the work 
sometimes Ellie and I will go to dinner and we're not allowed to talk about work or we're not allowed to like complain about work. Maybe it's like, oh, we're only going to talk about like the fun stuff tonight. <laughs> Especially that's also a thing we do with kids. Cause you can sit there and like go to dinner and all you're doing is talking about your kids and how you would think you could do it better. And you know, I remember when we were on the road with the band Ellie's very averse to con- like conflict, especially public conflict. And so if we got in a fight, she's like, didn't want to fight. Cause like the band guys are in the car with us, you know? And so we had this rule where I would send, we got this point where we have to like, sometimes we have to have this conversation and there's not going to be time once we get to the venue. Cause we have sound check and she's in charge of merch and she's got merch. I'm in charge of production, tour managing. And my, we didn't have any crew and you know, it was just us. And we're, we're all piled in one hotel room, which is also weird. And but that's just all we could afford. So I had this thing. I would just text the guys headphones, and everybody would put on their headphones. And Ellie and I would sit in the front seat and like work it out. And then whoever was not driving would then send the group guys headphones can come off. You know, but. I just think like as much honesty as married folks can have who are working together is really important. And then also to really carve out space where you're together and not working. Mm-hmm. Cause at the end of the day, that's the more important piece of your life is this life that you're building, the family that you're building. Although I think the work you make is really, really, really important. I do, but I think they need to be like the work and the relationship need to be partners that aren't always intermingled. Honestly, for Ellie and I, when she was in the band, it was a little different because it was my band from the beginning. and She came into my band. And she never really, it was never her dream. It was never her vision. And then when she started really writing her own songs, it was like, oh, I wrote another one about Jesus. You know, it was like, okay, well, that's awesome, but you, you need to go do your own thing because that's different than what we do. And it actually was good for us to sort of be in the same business, but to have like separate lanes just because that... Was that hard at all? It was hard. It is hard, but it was also great because I think we had a an understanding of what it's like. And so, touring is brutally hard on your body, especially as you get older, and you're you know like all the meet and greets, the, the you know it's just the pressure can can be really intense. I think it's hard all the way through, but somehow it actually feels even though I'm touring in a bus now and you know I have crew, it still somehow feels harder than it did when I was like in a van stand at the Super Eight. So. Part of us is when you're young, you have all this energy and like naivety about it, which is a good thing. But then, you know, Abner and Amanda from Johnny Swim, they're really like our, probably our closest musician friends. And theirs is different because they do it all together. They are great at like having fun and like turning off the work. And so I think being intentional about having some hobbies that you do together and then also having, it's really important for Ellie and I to have some things we do not do together. I go play golf, she gardens, and it's like, see you in four hours. <laughs> and that's great. We need that. Isn't everything a love song? Isn't everything a love song? Even when it's all wrong. Isn't everything a love song? Isn't everything a love song? Even when it's all wrong. We're going to step away from our conversation with Drew Holcomb for just a minute, but we'll be right back. Don't go away.
Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I have also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a lot to me, and I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, but please not while you're driving, to leave a rating and review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out to podcast platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive those numbers up together. Thanks. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. And now back to the campus of Lipscomb University and our conversation with Drew Holcomb. all fun and games but now someone must take the blame but I'm not sure if it's me or you they say we were just foolish kids when you're young it's what love is now that we are older it's still confusing my heart was Wrapped around your finger. Hey, hi. My name is Nina. I am a senior songwriting major, um, and I want to be an artist. And I also really like doing background vocals. And I'm also in a band with Caroline. Yeah. And we awesome. make music. Um, I guess as basic as a songwriter question it is, I just would really love to know about your writing process. Yeah. And I guess how it's grown over the years. So yeah, and also if you have any advice as far as consistency in writing um, and just kind of growing as an artist that feels true to yourself. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Wow, this is the hardest question to answer because in some ways, like songwriting is, there's, it's just magic. But then also magicians practice and they make time to learn and to grow. And so I think that while there's like this two-part 
thing to songwriting. It's like the, the inspiration, the perspiration. Like you got to be there and be ready when it when it strikes. But then you also got to like make time and practice the art of songwriting. A few of my favorite practical things that I do to write. Like one is I collect words, and so I'll go buy like a Sunday paper, like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Doesn't matter. Just a good like national paper filled with thoughtful writers who know how to use lots of different words. And I'll just go through and I got I can't like the assignment is a hundred words. It's just like find a word, write it down. Oh, that's an interesting word. Find a word, write it down. And then take all hundred of those and then find three rhymes for each one of them. And so you've got this just pile of words. Um, so that's one thing I do. I got, I stole that from John Prine. And then um, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco also does the journaling thing. So sometimes I'll take those words and I'll put like a bunch of them on the left side of pages in a journal and leave the right side empty. And the right side is for writing songs. And so I, if I ever get stuck, I just flip through and it's like, oh, there's, that's a, you know, and just build a song like that. And then I also collect like musical ideas, whether it's a little guitar riff or um, I sort of write rhythmically. Like almost all of my songwriting comes out of an, like an imaginary drum loop in my head. Whereas Ellie has a completely different process. It's all melody. She's like, I'm like, what's the word? What are you saying? And she's like, well, I want to nail the melody first. I'm like, you can't nail the melody until you know what the words are. You know, and we just fight about it, you know? Because I'm just like, no, you, that doesn't, what, you know, just not how my brain works and it's not how her brain works. And so we have to like, when we write together, we decide before we start who's in charge. And that person gets to leak, like make the decisions about what's more important and then you kind of allow the process to go that way. For, that's what, when co we go right together. Hey, rivers, oh, rivers, you're a toy tornado, rivers. Just like your name, you're making your way back home. Hey, rivers, oh, rivers, moving like all those Tennessee rivers, going to the ocean, making their way back home. And then the second thing I do is I will take a classic song. I'll say like, um, The Temptations, Just My Imagination. And then I'll write new music to it. So I'll just write completely new music to these lyrics. So I basically just use those lyrics as a guide to create a new structure musically. And then I'll write new words to my new music. And so I basically have like, stood on the shoulders of someone else but i haven't stolen anything because i just used their form to take something so it's like you know you could take uh i wish i had a guitar you could take like a let it be you know um so instead of in my hour of darkness you could say in my hour of darkness dum, 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 dum. mother mary comes to me let it be, let it be, let it be. And then all of a sudden you have a whole new like verse chorus and you just then you get rid of the words and you're like sitting here in the lips come room. You know, it's like, <laughs> wow, I gotta you know, so that's my like if I really am having a hard time and I really wanna write, that's my like cheat move. Don't tell don't tell anybody that. It's mine. <laughs> it's mine only. Yeah. I mean like one of our biggest songs I did this with Fire and Dynamite was you may remember this. We did this Christmas record, and I wanted to do Silent Night in 4-4 instead of 6-8. And so we did this whole, like, rockin' version of Silent Night. 
And then it got we got done with it, and it was like cool. We put it on this Christmas record, but then I was like, but I'm taking that music with me to do something else, and I wrote um, Fire and Dynamite, which is our first sort of that was that and Live Forever, the two songs kind of together that helped us kind of go. And so it's like, but I think for me now, the most important thing I do is just carving out this time for it. I think it's a myth that that you can only write when you're inspired. I think you work to get inspired. And you're always ready, whether it's having your phone with voice memos, um, a journal, or, you know, I use Master Writer a lot. It's really helpful. It's a great s- software. But also just the more you can listen to great writers, the more it affects you. When we did this thing in COVID called Kitchen Covers, where for like every night we learned a cover and played it on the internet. And that was actually really helpful for my songwriting because I learned all these songs that are outside of my genre, like... Or even not necessarily outside of my genre, but outside of my comfort zone. So I learned to play Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now, which is like historically way too complicated for me as a player. You know, I'm like, I sort of started yesterday what I was like when I was younger. It was like Johnny Cash, like three chords and just get get the message out there. You know? And so learning Joni Mitchell and Beyonce, I mean, Bruno Mars, there was all the songs that we did. And then I learned parts about my voice. I was like, wow, I didn't know I could do that. That's pretty cool. So I think... Learning songs that are outside of your, like what you're naturally inclined to, that are different than what you do musically. And also learning to write for yourself as a singer, I think, has been really helpful for me. When I was writing with this guy named Sean McConnell, Sean's had a bunch of big hits with Little Big Town and a bunch of people. He's a great writer. I went to him with this sort of half-finished song called, it wasn't called End of the World at the time. But then he's like, he's like, what if you started like up this, hey, it's the end of the world. And I was like, that's too high. And he's like, try it. I was like, hey, it's the end of the world. And he's like, he's like, I think you got, you're, you're almost there. You got, and so all of a sudden I like worked on it. And I was like, oh yeah, I got this. And so lastly, the collaborating has changed a lot of my songwriting too. I hated collaborating when I first moved to town because I would write with the country writers, writers and I was like, oh, this song is so stupid. <laughs> but this was like at the you know very beginning of bro country. I'll tell you a funny story about this. So. 2006, I go to see my brother-in-law, Will, play a uh, high school football game. I'm sitting there with Debbie Brown's wife, my mother-in-law. And she said, hey, you need to meet um, Julie. You need to meet Julie. Her husband's a songwriter in town. I was like, oh, Julie, nice to meet you. I'm a songwriter. She's like, oh, cool. Welcome to town. I was like, who, who, uh, who's your husband? He's like, his name's Paul Overstreet. And I, didn't, I didn't know what that meant. And she said, I was like, what, so what songs has he written? And she's like, oh, he wrote, uh, you know, Allison Krause's When You Say Nothing At All. And... Randy Travis's Forever and Ever, Amen. And I interrupt her and I say, oh, so he writes like really good songs, not like stupid stuff like she thinks my tractor's sexy. And she goes, oh, he wrote that too. (laughs) And I was like, oh. My last thing about songwriting is like, it's supposed to be fun. It's also supposed to be hard, but it's supposed to be fun. If you're not having any fun with it, take a break and just let it it sit. Don't like I feel like so many writers just like they get writer's block and they just start all this like, oh, what am I doing? I can't do it. I'm not good enough. And it's like, just hold on. Take a day off or two or a month.
I'm Kate. Hey, Kate. Um, I'm also a senior songwriting major. And um, my question, you started out as a history major. I thought that was very interesting. And then how did you go about finding your voice and kind of honing in on your skills? Was it like that first producer, did he give you feedback? And like, how did you really know like where to go from there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great question. The first producer and I fought tooth and nail about my voice because I thought I knew how to sing. Mm-hmm. Like, no, don't, you just turn the mic on. And I'll give you seven or eight <laughs> takes, and then you're welcome for the magic, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, what? Looking back, I'm like, gosh, I was such an idiot. Um, then, you know, so it was a lot of things. I mean, Brown was a really instrumental in my, you know, learning how to sing and find my voice. Mm-hmm. He's one of the, honestly, he would, he's going to be mad at me for saying this, but he would, Pretty much anybody who's ever done vocals with him would tell you he's probably the best best vocal producer in town. Um, I'm sure there are others that are that are in the same category, but I don't think anybody's better. Um, but also, he's also one of the pickiest vocal producers in town, which drove me crazy because he goes, oh, "That's great, do it one more time. That's great, do it one more time." If I was like, "Listen, Brown, it's fine if I'm doing this 20 more times. You can't say one more time anymore because I keep thinking I'm done." You know, <laughs> but. My favorite story about learning how to sing was there's this good friend of mine named Thad Cockrell. He's a great artist in town, great songwriter, and um, really talented singer. And he and I are good friends. And so I'd, I'd written this record, ended up being this record called Good Light that has a lot of sort of our fan favorite songs on it. And I, I called him. I said, hey, we're going to the studio in two weeks. Would you be willing to spend an evening? Just I'd love to play some songs and get your feedback on them. And he's like, yeah, great. So Ellie and I went over there and playing a bunch of songs and I start this song it's called what would I do without you and I start singing it like this sometimes I wake up with the sadness and other days it feels like madness so what would I do without you and he's like whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. he interrupts me and I'm like excuse me <laughs> I'm like in the middle of my song here and he gets right in my face like an inch away and he's like hey sing it to me like I'm right here and I was like okay okay and he's like no no right now I was like, oh, we're, we're like, actually do this. And I was like, he's like, just try to, don't, I don't want, I don't, pretend like my, you don't want the back of my head to hear it. Sometimes I wake up with the sadness and other days it feels like madness. So what would I do without you? And it's like, Ellie, I look over and Ellie's like just sobbing. And uh, I didn't understand dynamic. Mm-hmm. I thought that good singing was always like, you are singing loud like a disney character yeah yeah and and i'm singing and so that was a really pivotal moment for me because that opened up a whole piece of me that i didn't know about that was in here like you don't have to sing so loud you you can sing quiet but then also ellie really taught me how to learn to sing inside of my falsetto and then during covid i learned i I didn't I, i was i hated harmony for years like Ellie would be like, sing the harmony. It's really easy. And I'm like, listen, when you tell me it's easy, it makes me feel stupid. Because it's not easy for me. I don't hear harmony. I always, she'd be like, no, you're singing the melody again. And I'm like, I'm trying. But during COVID, we had this little farm piece of property that we bought. And I would go out there every week and cut the grass. It was like seven acres. So it took like four and a half hours. And I just put this John Prine playlist on. He had just passed away. And I would listen to these songs and I would sing harmony four hours once a week and now 
Because a lot of times, like festivals, artists will be like, Drew, come up and sing this song with me. Sing harmony on whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> Like, all of my fears and anxieties are, like, attacking me. So, like, I never forget. The first time it happened was uh, we had Brandy Carlisle at, uh, at Moon River. And she's like, hey, jump up and sing Angel from Montgomery, which is a John Prine song, with me. And, um, and I was like, awesome. I got that. Wow. This is, like, a totally different feeling. So... I never thought of myself as a singer, and now I'm like, no, nah, I'm, I'm a singer. I can sing, and I can sing in a lot of different lanes and spaces, and it's still all my voice. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not as protective of, like, no, my voice is this genre-specific Americana, like, yeah. I'm down here, and, you know. <laughs> it's like, no, I can also sing up here, and that's fine, and I like it better sometimes. And it's more fun, and people are smiling. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wake up with the sadness Other days it feels like madness So what would I do without you? When colors turn to shades of gray With the weight of the world at the end of the day What would I do without you? A decade goes by without a warning And there's still a kindness in your eyes Amidst the questions and the worry A peace of mind always takes me by surprise Hey, uh, I'm Noah. I'm a senior production major and uh, I want to be a guitarist and a record producer and you know, the whole enchilada with that. Yeah. Um, You mentioned earlier about how you would kind of go to like neighboring states and cities and you kind of had a following around this little, you know, that little bubble and everything. So when it comes to just like kind of growing your audience, um, how, what was your approach to like going to neighboring cities and like establishing that connection with people there? And well, it all started out with like people, like relationships that existed sort of previous to music. So, like, Auburn worked because five of my buddies from high school went to Auburn. And so I was like, oh, I know five people in Auburn that all know five people. And 25 people in a coffee shop is pretty good. You know, so that's sort of it was the same thing at Ole Miss at Oxford, Mississippi. Atlanta happened because I started playing Eddie's Attic. had an open mic night every Monday night, and I did it like ten times. And finally, and I also was, like, egregiously aggressive on, like, Sign up for the email list. Sign up for the email list. Sign up for the email list. Follow me on Facebook, you know? So, like, I look, I look back, I'm like, I don't want to see any videos of what I was like, like, on the promo. I was a, definitely a relatively heavy self-promoter, which was necessary at the time because I wasn't good enough to not do that. Um, for an example of that, like, I put on my first EP about a year after my buddy Dave Barnes put out his first EP. His first EP has four, like, completely timeless songs on it. My first EP is in the trash. I don't want anyone to ever know where it is. But he spent his time working on the songs. I spent my time working on all the hustle and playing the shows and get people to come. But then his career took off a lot quicker than mine. He's taken different paths since then. He doesn't love the touring part. Now he's more in the sort of songwriter world and has had great success there. But his rise was quicker because he focused more on the work. And so I think some of my hustle was a little bit unnecessary because the music wasn't ready. And I want to be I want to be like honest that the world was a different place in 2005 and 6 when I started out. COVID has really made it hard like is been hard on venues like there's way less small venues than there used to be. 
social media has made my understanding has made people of the age of 18 to 25 less likely to go out to shows than they used to be. There's more isolation. You read this article the other day that people age 18 to 40 are spending 12 to 15 hours more alone, more hours alone than they did six years ago. And so the social side of touring is not as prominent as it used to be. And there's not as much monoculture. Like there's everything is sort of genre packaged and so it's just it's i do think it's harder to develop by building just on touring i think you also have to really focus on you know finding your people through online music and like the zach bryan story is one of the wildest stories this guy was like a in the navy on tiktok playing songs in his barracks and it like blew up and now he's like probably gonna win like country album of the year and he's not even on a label and he has never had a song at country radio and he literally broke all the rules but our green room is next to his at Moon River, and he played guitar from 11 a.m. until he went on stage at 8.30. He loves it. Oh, whiskey river, take me home. There was no one in town that would give me a ride, so I waited for my heavy drunkenness to subside. Stole a pickup truck from a gas station pump. I prayed to the Lord for a run of good luck. Oh, whiskey river, take me home. There are like practical things to your question, like find the right venue, find the right person who owns a venue that believes in what you're doing and can help get you in front of the you know the regional act that's coming without an opener. And when you get up there, like deliver and give them a great 25 minute set. Or if you're wanting to be like the producer, guitar, you know, player, get up on stage with as many people as you can and and like deepen your chops. Like that's I think it's one of the greatest things about Duggar is that enrich and will honestly my whole band is they're deep and wide like you can get them to say hey country demo and they're like watch this bam like just nail it you know uh jazz okay you got that like they can do it all and it is important to go deep also but i think some width as a player and a producer is very important but finding young artists who are looking for somebody to be in the studio with and i mean it's a great time to be it's so much cheaper to make music than it was when I started out. It's a great time, I think, to be an aspiring producer, guitar player. So that's not a, like a particular answer to your question, because I do think this, the landscape is so different that I would be a fool to be like, hey, Noah, here's how it works. You know what I mean? To that particular sort of side of the, of the business. But at its heart, I think the same thing is what drives success from the beginning. When you walked into this room, you hardly knew anyone. Sea full of strangers crashing on the runs. When the band strikes by the end of the night, strangers no more. I want to dance with everybody who came through that door. Whether you came here to party or you came here to cry, whether to meet somebody, cheat somebody, get low or get high. So come on, all you people with two feet on this floor. Hi, I'm Grace. Hey, Grace. I'm a junior songwriting major here. I'm not typically in this class, but Come I'm on. in it for Glad tonight. You're here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my question kind of stems to we're in a band together. It's called Hello Darling. It's kind of um, folk cool. realm. And we're kind of in those like early stages that you were talking about where like you're, you know, 
texting people headphones and you just bought a van and you're going to like kind of your eight cities or your 12 cities and you're all piling in one hotel room. That's yeah. kind of what our life's like right now. And um, I I would just be interested to hear, you know, you talk about you have those, whether they're blunders or just like little incidences or things you look back on, like you didn't realize you're signing a COPUB or things like that. Um, if there was one thing in particular that during that, that kind of time in your life, um, either a blunder or mistake that happened and how you overcame it. Yeah. I, I chased having a manager and an agent too soon and I went with the wrong people and cleaning up that mess was a lot harder than it would have been had I waited for the right person to come to me. I think there's a, there's a narrative in, in our minds that the missing piece is that I need a manager. The missing piece is that I need an agent who's with a real agency. So for instance, what happened was I signed with a, a very good, very like the top five agency, but I signed with the wrong guy who was in a different genre than me, who I didn't know internally had a reputation as being a little bit of a, we're not gonna need to edit this part out. <laughs> but but the, the particulars are reputationally, I was therefore getting the same, I was therefore tagged with his reputation because I was his artist. And so all of the right people in, the, in that particular agency now saw me through the lens of that particular agent. And so I got no chance at any looks that, that would have been great for me had I just waited and the right agent come along. And so my reputation inside of that agency, which represents about 20% of the artists I wanted to tour with, it wasn't going to happen because I was so eager to like, I've got to have an agent. Oh, and they're with so-and-so agency, and that's a big deal. And it's like, wait until the right person comes along on that front. And then same with the manager front. My first manager was an amazing guy, like one of the most integrous people I've ever been with, but he was just a bad fit for me. And same thing, it just took longer to, to, to kind of clean it up and do the right thing. Um, there's sort of something about, well, my manager is going to call, talk to my manager, talk to my agent. <laughs> And if it's the wrong team, that's actually gonna it's gonna serve you in reverse. It's gonna do more more detriment than good, or or just like kind of keeps you in neutral, you know. So I always say that like you don't need a manager until you have something to manage. <laughs> if you're just looking for a manager who's like gonna make it happen for you, then you're 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 too it's too soon, you know. Also, like, if you have a choice between, like, a young manager who's a hard worker and who's, like, hungry to prove themselves, or, like, an old manager who's been doing it for 30 years and who, like, but has a bunch of names, go with the younger hustler or tell the old guy, yes, I'll come with you, but you have to bring this person with you, and they are day-to-day. -day. That would be the ideal. That would be the ideal thing is, like, to get your hustler, young, hungry manager into a system where he can get he or she can get the help they need, but you still want that person in your corner instead of the guy who's like, oh, I'm I'm going to Bermuda for two weeks to my yacht, you know? It's like because I manages some huge arena act. It's like they're not he's not going to be like hustling for you. Some people want a house on the top of the hill. Some people want people to pay all the bills. Some people want to go back in time Some people 
go back, can't wait the dead Or change what you said You want what you can't have You want what you can't have We want the spark, but we don't want the burn We want the love, but we don't want the hurt I'm Patrick. I also I have a band with Grace and then do a solo project sometimes. But I guess my thing that I've prided myself on is like having a really great relationship with my band. What are kind of your tips and tricks for things when communicating with your band that this always seemed to really work out well for you? And then also like how did it how did you handle it in the early stages when you were playing a lot smaller rooms and empty rooms and yeah. you're like kind of like trying to convince them like just stick around don't leave like it's gonna work yeah yeah well i think in some ways there's a there's a there's a practical reality that you either you know you either have to pay people for their time always or you have to prepay them for their time and their risk by giving them a piece of the long-term pie or there's a mixture of those two things so like my band guys have some royalties but they also have been paid from day one for every show we've ever done, even if it's just 25 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever. Um, and then the other thing I would say, as things grow, don't ever um, share the success is, 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 is one way to say it. Like there's, there's ways to share the success so that everybody feels like they're a part of the thing, but you also need to set clear. Like I think a, a, I think a band needs a decision maker. You know, very few democracies survive in music. U2 is like the only one I can think of that has done really, really well. So I think some like clarity of communication about roles and expectations is really important. I think a really hot button thing that I've seen with a lot of bands is assumption of people's time is a really unfair way to, to act. Meaning that, okay, so today's Thursday. If all of a sudden you get a call like, hey, we got this opportunity Sunday. And let's say that Noah's like, well, I can't on Sunday. I'm going to see my grandmother. It's like her 100th birthday. And you're like, do you have to be here? Like, what do you mean? You're part of the band. And it's like, well, do you didn't, it's, th it's in three days. Like, you got to have somebody on backup if that's a reality. Or if you've made a decision like, hey, we, we're in this together. We're not going to say yes until we all agree to it. Like, and again, every band dynamic is different. There's not a right way of doing it. But the right way is to know what the way is. And everybody needs to know what the what the what the way is you know so i call our band a benevolent dictatorship you know <laughs> meaning like when we go in the studio or like we, we just finished a new record so i'm not great at mixed notes like i my mixed notes are like that feels weird and i need a little more of this and that this is this something sounds funny with the snare drum it's very like non-professional notes, but it's feel notes. Whereas Duggar's like, all right, the 100K on the right side of the, you know, and it needs to come over the right 5%. And it's like, when we get to mixed notes, I'm like, Duggar, let's go to work. This is your role, you know? So being willing to like share, like over time you'll learn what you're not good at. And if somebody else in the band is good at it, then it's like, great, that's, that's you. Run with that. But clarity, especially because it is, it is whether you like it or not, you are, even at this age, you're starting a business. And you got to have clarity about who owns the business, how it's going to operate, how decisions are made, who's in charge. And it's, again, especially like, I'm not speaking to y'all's situation because I don't know it, but like 
our situation is I own the band. I mean, I own the name. I've started it. I write the songs. I own the publishing. But I share in the in the spoils of it relative. But I still do make the lion's share of the money because I've taken all. I'm, you know, when we get the bus, if the tour is terrible and we're twenty five thousand dollars upside down on the tour, that's coming out of my pocket. It's not coming out of anyone else's pocket in the band. So I have all the risk, and they're still going to get paid their day rate, which is negotiated every tour. You know, it's not, there's nothing, never, never assumed. So I think even like show pay and there's times when it's like, Hey guys, we just got offered Jimmy Kimmel. The budget is awful. I can't pay you your normal rate. Would you be willing to come do Jimmy Kimmel for half of what we usually pay you per day? And they're like, yeah, it's Jimmy Kimmel. Great. But if they say no, then I either have to pay the full rate or I say, well, cool. I need to find somebody else who will do it for the, for the rate. No hard feelings. You know, so just clarity of communication is everything. Wasting time, wasting money. You've been acting like a fool. You spend your I got a couple of quick things as we wrap up. One is that you guys, your band, and then a lot of the friends that you run with, that you've had at the festival, that you've recorded with, there seems to be this community of artists that share some kind of commonality spiritually, but have avoided going into the Christian music bubble or ghetto. Like you're, you're making music for everybody. And, was that something that was intentional or did it just kind of happen? You seem to be connecting with both mainstream Americana fans and Switchfoot fans. And, you know, it's like there's a lot of crossover there, but it's, it's an interesting realm that you and Johnny Swim and Colony House and where did that come from and how do you maintain it? I can only speak for myself, but I can maybe guess, you know, for the, the broader question. I think for me... I didn't listen to Christian music growing up. I was, I mean, I, I periphery listened to it because I went to youth group and my parents listened to a lot of Christian music. But I mean, when I was a kid, I listened to a lot of Christian music. Um, but my, I was a Pearl Jam, Blind Melon, U2, The Cure, Radiohead, Van Morrison, David Gray. Like I, all the music I listened to was quote unquote mainstream music or it was like independent music, you know? So it wasn't even like really a thought for me. It was just like, oh, I, I'm gonna, I want to make the music that I like, which is this songwriter, storyteller kind of stuff. I mean, I did grow up on a lot of Dylan's sort of Christian era records, like Slow Train Coming and Saved, 
and I loved those, especially slow train coming. And I think for me, I didn't, I didn't want to make music that limited who would be impacted by it. And so a lot of Christian music assumes a point, a lot of, um, the genre of Christian music sort of assumes a perspective for most of its audience, which is fine. It's just not what I am drawn to. It's not what I want to make. And there's also like, especially now, like if you go back to Brown's era, the songwriting in Christian music was more narrative and universal and it wasn't so vertically focused. Or now so much of Christian music is all about the sort of worship experience, which is fine. If you go back to like the big records that Stephen Curtis Chapman was making and, and Amy was making, these are like, really thoughtful, you know, introspective songwriter records, you know, and their music was like, as much as I love you too, they kind of ruined Christian music, even though, <laughs> even though, even though they're not a Christian band, right. but they were so big and popular and they were singing about these big themes that all of a sudden every band is just like, yes, the epic right. four chord song. And so that was like a whole era of like, oh, now it's all kind of sounds the same. But that that's changed. There's always like I don't want to put all of Christian music in that box and say that oh it's because it's actually a lot of it's really interesting and good. But like John's a great example. Like John from John Foreman from Switchfoot, he has like more overtly faith driven um, music, but he um, he's vulnerable about his perspective. Like I love the song Jesus, I have my doubts. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it absolutely punched me in the face. I mean. Kind of a where are you? It's like a psalm. It was a lament, and so I think that a lot of those musicians that you mentioned, we share a lot in common. We all share a love of all kinds of music in common that we didn't just want to sing about. In order to be a person of faith, you don't have to just sing to God. I have a tendency to laugh at all the wrong moments. Sometimes I forget the words to my own songs I'm not the silent type or an exit sign or a yellow brick road And you are the one thing that I know It's in the wine we drink Dirty dishes in the kitchen sink And the lights go out till the sun comes out We are not alone It's in the miles we drive Never having to say goodbye It's the things we tell each other Without saying a word You are the one thing what I appreciate, and I think it's helping to cut a path for the next generation, is that you are proving, whether it's the fact that you're doing music, that it's it's not mainstream country, it's not classic rock, it's, it doesn't really fit into one genre bucket. You know, it's, it's good music that people want to sing. And then even on the spiritual side, there has been about 25 years where a lot of people thought, well... If I want to bring my faith into my art, I've got to do it this way. And there's another generation now coming up seeing plenty of examples of folks saying, no, there's lots of ways you can do that. Yeah, and definitely. I just felt like the genre of Christian music limited me to what I could say. And that's not who I was. And that, I think that's true with a lot of those other artists as well. 
Um, but I'm also careful not to say that that's, that's not, that shouldn't be everybody's perspective. That's my perspective right. and that's my calling. And also too, just from a personal perspective, I'm not a person with like a really confident faith. So I would be a liar if I was like getting up and being like, all right, everybody sing with me to God. You know, I would feel like a, a fraud. I have a very complicated relationship with my faith and with the church and that's okay. Um, and I think my music, if you listen to a lot of it in that, with that knowledge, you'll be like, oh, I see. Well, man, thank you for, uh, for taking time with us today, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> this is great. I am the second born of my mother and father. He's a lion-hearted man. She's a Jesus-loving woman. No matter how far I roam, I always belong. was it. Thanks again, Drew, for your thoughtful and transparent answers to all of our questions. This conversation will be a valuable resource for a long time. And thanks, Brown Bannister, for setting this up and for inviting me to teach this class with you. What an honor. And to the students who brought such great questions, you got full marks, of course. Well done. As I pull my soapbox out to wrap this up, I just want to point out the power of humility and teachability, even for those of us who have been out of college for quite a while. Although I was not at all surprised, I was struck by Drew's openness as he talked about his failures and mistakes and how he continued to learn, to change, to grow, and to shift his perspective. I can tell by listening to him that he is the kind of person who will continue to learn. He'll notice new things and allow his perspective to change. I'm trying to be teachable like that, even as I, myself, teach. We miss so much when we move through life as if we have mastered it all. That's probably one of the things I love most about music. It's always shifting and evolving. There are always new stories coming through the melodies. The more I listen carefully, 
the more perspectives I absorb, the more I grow in insight and empathy. Okay, I'm stepping off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. You can find a complete list of all of the music we used on the show notes page at truetunes.com slash drewclass. You'll find links to the program at Lipscomb if you're interested in learning more about that as well. Thanks again, Brown Bannister and everyone else at the school. I'm looking forward to working with you all. Thanks as always to our Patreon backers. If you'd like to join the group, head over to patreon.com slash truetunes. Or if you'd like to give us a one-time gift, you can find the PayPal link on the show notes page. And thank you for doing all the things, leaving us the ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the weekly Spotify Gallery Stage Mixtape, and signing up on that email list. This podcast was written and produced by me, JJT, with co-production, editing, and sound design by Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Production. Our theme song is a special instrumental mix of Full Circle by Phil Keggy and Rex Paul. The contents of this program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Thoughts and opinions of our guests do not represent the positions of the producer or of our sponsors. Discernment is recommended. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to fill out your class evaluations and don't forget your pre-reading for next semester. Peace. This is the opportunity of a lifetime for you. Not only will you be able to own long play albums available no place else in the world, but you'll carry and show your friends your personal membership card entitling you to full club privileges. You'll probably wear your original golden bronze country music club pin, and you'll never pay dues or have contracts to sign. We don't want to rush you. Why not pour yourself a cup of coffee? Then. Look over the literature that came with this recording. After that, well, all you have to do is fill out an enclosed application, and fast as the U.S. mail can deliver, you'll receive your membership card, original country music club pin, and album number one.